HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Juniors. You have not really lived until you've had cheesecake at Juniors. For more information, visit juniorscheesecake.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at feast.yr.ears. Today is episode 18 of Feast Your Ears, and joining me by phone all the way from the Bronx is Annie Novak, the mastermind of Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, uh, a worker of magic at the New York Botanical Garden, and author of the new book, The Rooftop Growing Guide, How to Transform Your Roof into a Garden or Farm. The book comes out on February 16th. Um, Thanks, Annie, for joining me on the show today by phone. Hi, Harry. What a pleasure to hear your voice. I'm sorry that you're not here in Bushwick and that we're not going to be sharing some Roberta's pizza after, but we'll have to get together later for lunch. <laughs> I, I owe you more than a pizza, for sure. <laughs> um, so, uh, usually I start off by asking people um, when, you know, when you meet somebody uh, on a plane, on a train, at a dinner party, inevitably the conversation always ends up at, what do you do? And what do you say when someone asks you that question when you meet them? Well, that's a fair question. And I've, for the last 11 years, been trying to figure out how to answer that succinctly because I am involved in a lot of projects. But at the core of everything I do is a combination of food, education, and farming. And I don't often see them as very separate, which is why I have an easy time explaining my passions and my career. Sure. Um, But it's taken me to a lot of exciting places. That's great. So can you talk a little bit your, I mean, I don't, I, I hesitate to call it a day job, but um, you work and you are currently at work at the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx. Can you talk a little bit about what you do there? Absolutely. I started at the New York Botanical Garden, since I think I'm going into my 12th season now, um, 
two days out of graduating college, I had an internship here at a really beautiful two-acre vegetable-focused growing site called the Edible Academy. And the larger New York Botanical Garden is 250 acres. It's an unbelievably large, gorgeous resource um, right in the middle of the Bronx, New York. And I, on that site that I um, manage, um, work with um, my colleague and a, and a number of staff to maintain a three-season vegetable program um, dedicated to the Children's Education Department. Uh, it's, an, it's an absolutely marvelous job. And if I was to go into further detail, it's right about when people start to get jealous because the, the combination of programming we get to do between teaching and cooking and gardening and working um, within our forest as a resource um, as well as in the vegetable patch is unbelievable. Um, and they're actually celebrating our 30th year of programming this year and the 60th, I'm sorry, the 60th year of programming, uh, the 30th year on our site. So it's a program with a really long and rich legacy. Wow, that's that's really uh, that's impressive that it's been there for that long. Is I mean, I, I know that historically the Bronx was a lot of farmland. Um, is the yeah. area that you currently are growing vegetables on was that farmland say you know two hundred years ago? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because the garden itself, the New York Botanical Garden, is celebrating its 125th birthday this year. She's looking good, nice. and um, we the site that I oversee in. Um, that specific location was actually where the Lorillard Mansion was. And the Lorillards were the family that um, owned the property privately before it was then turned over to, to public use and became a museum institution. And before that, it was actually likely a site of a Lenape settlement, which is the Native American um, uh, native to our region. And we know that because if you go on the other side of the two acres that um, the, of the Edible Academy, there's actually a hill that has some oyster shells embedded in oh. the soil, and they think that it was a midden, like a trash pile. Right. So a homestead or a trash pile, either way, people have been on that site for an incredibly long time. I would say 400 years is a conservative estimate to, um, of use. And so it's calling it, the, the site I manage is called the Family Garden. And I don't think that's an inappropriate use of, of words. It is indeed a very family-centric site and has been for, for centuries. That's great. And... As far as farming goes, I mean, you, you grew up in Chicago, right, the Chicago area? I did. I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. And did you did you do any gardening growing up? I can't say I had much of a green thumb growing up, but one thing I've really come to recognize is that we spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, that was in part because my mother, in her wisdom, decided never to give us house keys, um, <laughs> nor allow us to watch television. And I'm not making any parenting suggestions, Harry, because you have two really lovely children. But <laughs> my mother's tip would be lock them outside yep. <laughs> and cut them loose. And we didn't do any gardening, but I spent a lot of time swimming in Lake Michigan and up and down the beaches in Chicago. Um, it's a really wonderful place to grow up if you like being outside because the seasons of the year where it's beautiful, it's one of the prettiest cities in the world. And you have access to, you know, the Chicago Botanic Garden or the Morton Arboretum or any of the public institutions. We have a free zoo. Um, and I, I think I just, more than I fell in love with plants, I really deeply needed that open space. And I, I do to this day. It's part of why I spend so much time outdoors, whether I'm farming or not. It's just a real pleasure to be under the sky next to some trees uh, just enjoying the planet. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of being outside, I mean, Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, um, I would encourage anyone who hasn't been there to go check it out. It's, as as you might guess, it's on Eagle Street in Greenpoint. Um, you know, is an incredible place to be outside. Um, it has probably the best view, I would say, of anywhere I've been in Greenpoint. Mm, yes. We have, a, we have a killer skyline view. And the thing I like about it, the way that Greenpoint is situated 
is it's directly, the farm itself is directly opposite sort of the Empire State Building, you know, iconic Manhattan skyline. And, and I joke about this, but often when I'm up there and I'm hearing construction noises, which are becoming increasingly common sure. in Greenpoint, North Brooklyn, um, it's nice to sort of um, squint a little bit, and you can suddenly transform that skyline into mountains. And yeah. it's a really beautiful place. Uh, and, yes, it does. The wonderful thing about rooftop farming is, in fact, that you, you get lifted off the ground and up into the air, and you experience the city in a completely different way. And it's something that's really helped me reconnect with my love of urban farming, which, which is very different in sensibility from rural farming. It, it was a very conscious transition for me. Um, and in part, that had a lot to do with the opportunity to farm on a roof. Right. To, to touch briefly on all of that construction in Greenpoint, um, is, I know that there's a very large construction project planned for sort of very near where the, where the farm is. Is that going to obstruct your view and sort of change that block? There's a construction actually happening right now. There are some residential buildings going up to the north of the farm, which one of the things that's considerate about that construction, I think, is that it does have um, a really nice balance of glass windows and brick. So it's a pretty handsome building for a new building. And the thing that has been my primary concern with any new construction in that area is not really so much the view, which I think is important, uh, but the for the sake of the farm, you know, one is that any construction that happens, there's a lot of noise pollution and, and just general air pollution. Right. Um, and that's a concern, I think, as a vegetable site. Um, it's also something that if there's more glass going up around us, that definitely increases the heat island effect, hmm. which will in turn affect our plants. So we get asked a lot about shade. I'm not really too worried about shade. I'm definitely more worried about glare. Oh. Um, and then the other really important thing, which a lot of people don't consider when they're rooftop gardening, is wind tunnels. Um, and the wind's coming. Right now we have a pretty, you know, the seven seasons that I've been up there, or six years I've been up there, the wind comes gently off the south, and it moves up under the Williamsburg Bridge and comes across the farm. And any buildings that go up along that waterfront are going to start to channel the wind differently. And I'm, I'm very intrigued because, to, to just say one more point about all of this, our situation is unique, but I would hope that anyone could learn from it. And I think a lot of rooftop gardeners face challenges with shade light, wind. So I tend not to get, you know, I'm an optimistic person by nature, but I tend to not get too, you know, down and out about, oh, new construction that's going to destroy the farm, because the reality is it's just putting us closer to what most people have to deal with. And as a site that, while being a for-profit farm, focuses a lot on education, I think that's an opportunity for us. Um, And we're not going anywhere. We're a green roof. So even if it changes from lettuce to sedum, we're still benefiting the city and the building in all the same ways we did when we were growing vegetables. So I'm, I'm very open-minded about the whole, the whole situation. Also, there's not a lot I can do, man. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> these, these, are, these are really large sort of like tectonic plate type forces, right, that we can't really, can't really affect. I mean, yeah, it, it yeah. seems to me, though, that there are also... That, sorry, go ahead. Oh, there could be a benefit. I mean, you know, when, when that farm started, you know, going up there, I mean, the, there was nothing there, right? I mean, there mm-hmm. were the film studios, the Broadway stages that the farm exists mm-hmm. on the roof of, but there wasn't really anything over there. And so it seems to me that the opportunity, and I'm, I'm imagining that those buildings will be tall enough that some of those residents can actually look on the farm and see it. Mm-hmm. And that right there, you know, immediately you're going to have people say, oh, there's a farm right there. Oh, maybe I should be buying the vegetables from right there. Exactly. And, you know, beyond even just buying the vegetables, we, we have seen in the years that the project has been there, the I call it the sort of lighthouse effect. It's this, It's that the farm itself, while sort of postage stamp size, managed to broadcast a huge message 
um, in a way that surprised even me when I first got into it. And so why I call it this lighthouse effect is this idea that you can have a very small, you know, light on a shoreline that then helps shepherd ships into safety. And I, and I see the farm that way as well. So if we have residents looking down on it, you know, part of it's about buying vegetables, but it is also about that daily inspiration and that the cachet of saying, like, this is my morning view. You know, I, yep. I really do want, I really do want that to be a view that more people see. And, um, so, you know, if we, the other thing is that, that those buildings were under contract to be built, and that land was sort of set aside, well, like, I think at least a year before the farm itself was conceived. So we've been, I've been gracefully given, you know, six years to kind of figure out how to manage the inevitable. Um, and, and part of it is, again, I'm just so optimistic about everything. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, we're happy to share that view. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's cool. I think the opportunity for people to, to stand on their on their terrace with their morning coffee and look down on on chickens and you know and tomatoes yeah. growing is really cool. I think that's great. Yeah, you know? and maybe they'll put some plants on their terrace and yeah. put down their coffee and start growing some uh, you know chamomile and make some herbal tea or something. Right. I don't know. <laughs> One can dream. <laughs> so Eagle Street was um, was the first for profit rooftop farm in the United States. And, uh, it was yeah. If we're going to be right? really technical, it was the first commercial green roof row farm. Okay, cool. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we can be very technical about it. Um, you know, and so I mean, do you feel like this is a? I mean, is it a viable business model? Is it something that more people have gotten into? Obviously, you know, you I know you started the farm with Ben Flanner, who went on to help found uh, Brooklyn Grange, and they now have two locations. Um, you know, there's hydroponic. There's Gotham Greens who are doing a lot of hydroponic growing in the New York area on rooftops. Um, are there other people doing row farms the way that Eagle Street and Brooklyn Grange are? Certainly. I mean, part of the pleasure of working on the Rooftop Growing Guide, which um, 10 Speed Press will publish in February, part of that pleasure was meeting with and interviewing other entrepreneurial, educational, nonprofit, and private projects on rooftops. We did an extensive, I'm using the royal we here, but I also dragged a, a lot of friends into the project with me um, to photograph and help illustrate, et cetera. But the book made a point not just of being our story at Eagle Street, but of many other sites, in part because our story is so unique. I mean, the generosity that Broadway Stages exhibited when they helped us found the project, they fully financed the Green Roof installation, and they've been very supportive of the farm since its inception. So I wouldn't want to take full credit for the opportunity we have on that roof at all. Um, but we went around the country and, and reached out across the world to other rooftop farms, including, you know, places like Gotham Greens and the Grange, to figure out, like, what are the different models that are out there? And unsurprisingly, just like plants, the rooftop farms themselves adapt to their local governance and situation and, and economics. Uh, so there's every, you know, every system you could think of, somebody's trying that model. Um, even in New York, there's, I think we profiled, I want to say like eight or eight or nine different roofs in New York, um, all completely diverse in what they're trying to do. And each one is best suited to its demographic and its site. That's, I mean, it's it's inspiring to hear that it's something that people are really sort of has has taken off. Um, you know, I, I always think about it whenever I fly into New York. You know, once in a while, that the approach to LaGuardia, you kind of come up, you come up the East River, and you can just look down, and it's just you know, it would be amazing if someday it's a sea of green instead of a sea of gray and black. I absolutely agree, and I I do I know the, the exact approach that you're thinking of, and one of the other things that I really connect with on that on that path is. You know, the New York New York City area is part of the Northeast uh, Atlantic flyover zone, which is a really important corridor for migratory birds and insects. 
And I always think of, you know, again, thinking back to the centuries and centuries and centuries of history that New York City has as a ecological site and as a people as a peopled site, you know, how how our landscape has transformed, not just rooftops, but ground level spaces. I mean, any green space you can squeeze in, it's it's not just about food production, although that's a deeply important part of what rooftop farming offers. It is very much an ecosystem that we've archipelago through our architecture and to, to stitch that all back together and to you know, to reaffirm that we are a site that for hundreds of thousands of years and longer has hosted, you know, all of these different living beings. Um, it's a really beautiful thought. And when you're in an airplane, you get to think about it a little more um, literally. Sure. And, and I mean, you know, plants are, plants are amazing. I mean, I, I never had a green thumb, particularly growing up. I mean, we kept some house plants when I was a kid and we did a little gardening and things like that. And then as I got older, when I went to college and graduated from college, I, you know, I never kept plants in my apartment ever until, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. And, you know, I mean, now I, I can't imagine it without, and, you know, I manage very somehow have not killed a couple of orchids that I have. That are, <laughs> I mean, but it's really amazing. You look and there's this gorgeous flower blooming and, you know, this year on my deck, you know, we grew lots of, lots of things and a lot of, a lot of mint and things like that. And I, you know, as it was getting colder, I mean, it took a long time to freeze this winter, but I looked out on the deck and there was this five gallon bucket full of mint that was, hadn't frozen. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm just going to put it in the living room. So I have this oh, five-gallon bucket of mint growing in my living room, and Frank, <laughs> Frank and Moxie, my children, like to walk over and take you know take leaves of mint off of it because I just figured, why not? I can keep this thing alive. And we have a fig tree that we started from a cutting last winter inside, and mm. then grew on our deck over the summer, and then still seemed too small, you know, and to really like weather the winter. So that's in the corner of the living room too, and it, it, it's flourishing indoors. In, the, in I in, love that. Yeah, it's a. It's great to be surrounded by vegetation. Yeah, and you know, there's the writer Richard Loof, who wrote um, The Nature Principle and Last Child in the Woods, he, he's one of the people that has sort of, for popular reading, taken a lot of academic research around the importance of nature and biophilia and put it, put it into a context that's very readable. I really recommend him. But he, you know, one of the things I love about apartment gardening is that when I teach classes and people like you are trying to figure out what will grow best in their apartment, you start to notice things that you wouldn't have picked up on except your plant tells you. So, for hmm. example, you know, your sun orientation. And I think, like, knowing what direction the sun rises and sets over your apartment is, is nice. Like, on the weekends, like, how much natural light are you getting in your apartment? Like, this is important for your own health and happiness. Um, how much dust does your apartment get? You know, people will come up to me and say, my plants are always dirty. And I'm like, well, you're breathing that, babe. you got to, like, figure out what's going on near your apartment. you got to let dust out of there. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship to start to cultivate plants because you start to learn to take better care of yourself. Absolutely. Um, we're going to take, take a short break and hear from our sponsors here. And when we come back, um, we'll talk a little bit more about the book. And I want to hear about um, classes that you have coming up. Let's play a game. If I say three words, let's say Brooklyn classic food. You tell me what comes to mind. I'll give you a second. If the answer wasn't juniors, you lose the game. 
you can't possibly be a Brooklyn foodie, or a foodie at all for that matter, and not know about Junior's. Founded by Harry Rosen in 1950, Junior's landmark restaurant is known as the home of New York's best cheesecake. Real talk, you have not fully lived unless you've had Junior's Cheesecake. The original location in Brooklyn on Flatbush Avenue is still thriving, or you can check them out at recent landmark additions in New York's Grand Central Terminal or in the heart of the theater district on Broadway and Times Square. Check out their first restaurant outside of New York at the Fox Tower Hotel at Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. It's not just cheesecakes. They've got steak, seafood, sandwiches, salad, everything you would possibly need to complete an authentic New York dining experience. Don't be embarrassed next time somebody asks you if you've been to Junior's. Visit juniorscheesecake.com for more information. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I've been speaking with Annie Novak about her new book, The Rooftop Growing Guide, How to Transform Your Roof into a Garden or Farm. So the book comes out in mid-February, right, Annie? Correct. February 16th is the greatest day the planet has ever seen. I can't wait. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be it's going to be amazing. Uh, and so uh, I know you have some some classes and workshops coming up. There'll be one um, at the Brooklyn Kitchen in April. Correct. Yes, we have a long list of um, programming for the spring, which I'm excited about because uh, I love teaching. It's a huge passion of mine. Um, teaching at the Brooklyn Kitchen has always been fun because people, you know, students in general are very good cooks. They're very familiar with food, and I think. As you said, six years ago or so, you started doing more apartment gardening, and it sort of awakened you to this world of plants. I Similarly, when I teach, I try and lure people in by breaking bread, but by the end of it, you will be learning how to grow wheat. Uh, and hopefully, it's, it's a passion that sticks with you for the rest of your life. Um, so we have classes at Brooklyn Kitchen. We're doing, um, I'm teaching classes at the New York Botanical Garden. We're doing a free workshop series with Madewell um, across the country, actually, in a couple different cities, uh, teaching people about seeds and sunflowers. I'm offering a program uh, at uh, almost every city we're going to. We're trying to do at least one free workshop. And all of those classes are, uh, including, sorry, a class at Terrain as well. Um, all those classes are listed at the Rooftop Growing, or sorry, RooftopGrowingGuide.com has the class listing. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be great. And I definitely, as someone who moved from an apartment with a backyard where we had a little patch of dirt um, and then moved into an apartment with a deck and now we do all of our growing essentially on a roof um, you know it's it's a it's great to know and understand that you can actually grow things both that are beautiful and delicious in small spaces on a roof exactly and I think one of the neat points of conversation around rooftop gardening is that rooftop gardening is applicable to people who are interested in container gardening square foot gardening, intensive plantings, there's a whole range of skills that you build, whether they're on a roof or on the ground or on a balcony. And that's, that's generally the direction I tend to teach, is just getting people involved in whatever space they have available to them. What's your favorite thing to grow on the roof or in a container garden? I am known as a bit of a chili head, I'm afraid. I have my reputation, uh, but I'm a, bit, um, I'm a bit of a fan of the chilies. I, I love growing chili peppers because I think... Uh, they're an interesting plant on a number of reasons, but I suppose the best reason is that they are absolutely delicious, and it's one of those foods that you can take in a lot of different directions. Um, I personally love to make hot sauces because the combination of salt and vinegar and chilies is just really delicious and healthy, um, and it's a great way, um, because they're grown in so many different parts of the world, it's a great way to explore global cuisine. 
Um, and at the end of the day, chilies are just super tough. As a plant, they grow really, really readily. And um, they're just a fun one when you're learning how to seed save for the first time, you're learning how to hand pollinate, um, or you're just learning how to grow a plant. It's a good place to start. So that reminds me, actually, I, I, didn't, I didn't even think that I was going to have this question. But now that you're talking about chilies, I do. So I grew a couple of chili plants last summer on our deck and actually had one plant that I had gotten as a seedling um, from a friend who makes hot sauce, and it never fruited. But mm. all the other chilies around it of different varieties did. And I'm wondering, Ooh. do you have any thoughts on, you know, any, like, pro- prognosis on why that did might have happened? it make flowers? It did. It made flowers, but none of them ever turned into peppers. Did the flowers um, drop off uh, while they were still white? Yeah, I think they must have. Okay. Uh, you know, the flower, flowering in the pollination process is very interesting in New York City. Um, typically, it can be a couple of things. One is that I don't know what condition the plant was that your friend was seed saving from, so right. it might have been a genetic thing, um, although that's less likely. Um, sometimes it's a nutrient deficiency. Um, flowering, you know, and fruiting takes a lot out of a plant, um, although it sounds like you were treating them all the same. Yep. And sometimes it's, um, you know, there's like a snap of poor weather and you can have blossoms drop off. Um, typically that happens with perennial fruit trees, though. Um, and then other times it might be insects. Um, it's one of the reasons we keep honeybees at the rooftop farm is we know we need a pollinator readily around. Although right. there are, I recently read, 64 different kinds of bees in New York City, not just the honeybees. So um, I don't know, Harry, I'd have to take a closer look. You should probably <laughs> take one of my classes. <laughs> I, guess, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll have to. Um, so uh, I know um, from knowing you, but also from following you on Instagram, that you have a really awesome dog named Leo. I have a beautiful, a beautiful dog named Leo the dog. Um, and I wondered if you could tell the story of how, how Leo the dog came into your life. And I'm hoping that maybe, I know that, you know, you are incredibly busy with your book and your farms and you're going to be traveling and other things. And I know that you're looking for a new home for him. So I'm hoping yeah. that maybe, maybe there's a listener out there who will hear this and decide that they really, you know, they need an awesome dog. And so they could adopt How kind Leo. of you to ask. Now, Leo the dog, I was biking to a New Year's Eve dinner party three years ago and I already have chickens, I already have rabbits, I run a small farm, I have three jobs. I was biking to a dinner party, and I saw a very beautiful dog run into the middle of the road and get hit by a car and flip over the hood, and, I mean, he was just, like, splashed on the street. So I biked over to the middle of the road, and I stopped traffic, and I looked around, and none of the pedestrians were doing anything. So I took him by the collar, and he had no collar. Um, So what I ended up doing was, on New Year's Eve, spending that celebration in a veterinarian's office, um, getting him fixed up. And I was told at the office, because he's a German Shepherd mixed breed, he's a beautiful 55-pound mixed breed German Shepherd, um, sweetest face you've ever seen, that because he was um, no one's dog, they would likely just suggest taking him to a shelter or putting him down. Mm. And it was one of those split-second decisions that I thought, there's this moral part of me that can't do it. So I have since taken care of him. And at this point, um, and yes, now publicly reaching out, if anyone would like to help foster one of the most intelligent, charming, sweetest dogs with a quirky personality, um, you should let me know because he really is a, a gem, an absolute gem. I just am not designed to be a dog owner and never have been, although I have to say he's a very good friend. <laughs> well, I, I, he appreciates, as, as do other dog owners, that you made the, the effort to, to help him. And How to could you not? No, we of course. He's a sweet face. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, 
Well, so if anybody out there wants a dog, Leo the dog is awesome and could definitely Leo use the a dog, and he's, he's listed as Foster Dogs NYC. You can look up Leo and Annie, and he'll come up. Great. Uh, I want to shift the conversation to another one of your passions. Um, I also know that you are a very committed long-distance runner. Yes. Yes. And I, I, I want to I want to know a little bit more about that. I mean, I know that you have run the marathon, and then this past year you did a fifty mile race. I did, yeah, um, yeah. I've yeah, I've been running. I've been running my whole life. I started running when I was in middle school, um, and I used to do cross country, which is a much shorter distance. It's no deeper than a five k. And in college, I came out to New York for school, and it was the first place I'd ever trained where I was running on hills and through the woods, and it really transformed the way I looked at running, and I just started getting into longer and longer distances because, you know, my whole life I've dealt with um, depression, and it was something that I knew wasn't me. It's very much, this. it feels very parasitic on my personality because, as I said, I identify as an optimist. And so during those harder times when I was feeling a little blue, it really helped me a lot both to be outside but also to have a sort of focused activity where I could just move through the world more gracefully and you know other than that like even when I'm in a good mood I just love running so I don't I don't want to you know frame this like it was a therapy at all it really does feel like a natural part of my personality but one thing that got me into long distance running is that I've done at this point now 13 marathons and this fall I did a 50 mile run and the joy of it was I was looking back at the history of long distance walking which is something that got really popular in like the 1870s Hmm. And this is something that right after the Civil War, everybody was moving into cities, and they were becoming urbanized for the first time. And they were, I'm not even sure how this sort of phase, you know, fad catches on, but people were getting really into competitive walking. And, you know, if you read a lot of the work, early work of the young John Muir, John Muir is a wonderful wilderness writer. Um, and, and walked, ev- and walked and everywhere. He, yeah, he walked everywhere. And not only that, but he walked, he did, he wrote a book quite famously called Thousand Mile Walks to the Golf, where he walked to Florida, and he didn't want it published because, you know, he was younger and it was sort of a sloppy book, but the thing that I remember, I connected with that so deeply, and people like John Muir, Teddy Roosevelt was another compulsive adventurer, exerciser, Um, all of these people dealt with, they were majestic, majestic people, but they all dealt with, you know, ups and downs in mood, and they felt that, you know, this was a great way to interact with, with, like, battle that while also interacting with the natural world. So for me, the 50-mile run um, came out of wanting to do something that felt absurdly challenging. And I'll tell you, Harry, the craziest thing is it was not that hard. Hmm. It was just a day of running. And at the end of the day, I actually did really well. I placed in the top 20 women of 1,000 people and the top 150 overall. Yeah, thanks. I only brag because it like kind of still surprises me. But it really was just I was in such a state of euphoria the whole day. It felt so rich and like I just looked at trees the whole time. I listened to birds. I was literally smiling the whole day. Um, it just, it's one of those things that, like, because I always challenge people, my students, my sisters, my friends, to, to be their best selves. And every now and again, you just have to sort of set a goal for yourself that makes you feel like you can chide people the same way, and it comes from a really informed place. So it wasn't hard. I loved it. I recommend it for anybody. Um, you know, I was a competitive bicyclist before I got into running more heavily, and it's just—it's really just about being outside and being experiencing the biological memory of your body. You know, people are built to walk and they're built to run, and I—I I had to do very little. I just relied on my, you know, <laughs> quarter million years of genetics or whatever <laughs> went into making that possible, and, and just went for it. 
Um, do you have any more planned? Are you going to run any any more 50 milers or longer coming up? Well, the nice the nice thing about saying it publicly is when I have to, right? Yep. Um, <laughs> I would love to run 100 miles. It's sort of an arbitrary number, but it's the next one that's big. And I think I'd probably like to finish the book tour at a sane mental state, and then I will look forward in the next year and a half to trying to do something like that before I before I turn 35. And then after that, who knows, man, I should probably like buy a sailboat and sit still for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, have to, it'll have to be big enough that you can walk around it, though, I feel like. I don't, I, I don't I know, As someone who knows you, I don't see you like, sitting still for that, for that long. <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> um, well, it's been it's been a real pleasure um, talking by phone today. Do you have anything else that you want to say or bring up? Any other projects you have going on? Anything happening at the botanical garden people should know about before we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. The the Edible Academy uh, at the New York Botanical Garden. We're going to start um, our season again in late March, and we have open afternoon hours. It's the Dig Plant Grow program. So anyone who is able to come up and visit the New York Botanical Garden, it's just off the 4 train or the Metro North, you should come on out to the Edible Academy site, the two-acre vegetable garden. And during those afternoon open hours, we welcome people to dig and plant right alongside of us. Um, and it's a really wonderful space. The entire garden itself is a beautiful campus. It's, it's definitely worth a visit. And Eagle Street will open up in late May on Sundays, the last Sunday of the month, if anyone would like to do something in Brooklyn. Great. I'm, I'm definitely putting it on my calendar because I want to bring Moxie up to work on the farm on Sundays. Yes, please. Moxie Chicken Keeper. Yep. Moxie, Moxie Chicken Keeper. And, and I, I will say, um, I wish, I wish I had a video to share of this, but a few weeks ago I was upstate visiting a friend who keeps 20 laying hens and young Mr. Frank at two, just over two had the biggest grin I've ever seen on that kid's face chasing (laughs) these hens around and you know they're very very common i mean my friend has raised them since they were chicks and so he just lets them roam in the yard and so frank was chasing the chickens around in the yard and was so so happy so frank also would love to visit the chickens (laughs) got a young farmer on your hands there harry yeah i think so i think so we'll we'll see what we can do well uh thank you annie and uh you can find more about eagle street uh at rooftopfarms.org i wanted to mention that um and you should check out the rooftop growing guide when it comes out thank you for listening everybody to feast your ears big thank you to Kristen baylor who's my producer and liz smith who engineers this show every wednesday and please take a moment to like the show on facebook and itunes listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>